Well, hello everyone and welcome to Gospel Community Providence. We are a small community of Jesus followers in Providence, Rhode Island. Our goal in life is to be the family of God, redeemed and transformed by Jesus, living out God's mission in our culture. You're listening to content created specifically for our church community, and the thoughts and teachings that you'll find here come from a study of the Bible that is informed by some of the best thinkers and followers of Jesus today and throughout church history. Just a heads up, you may hear a variety of voices and distractions and noises in the background. This is because we are a church of families with real lives full of children, noise, and interruptions. We celebrate these noises, however, because they remind us that real life is not a perfectly curated moment, but is full of opportunities to worship Jesus through the messy, unflattering, and mundane. In addition to this, you may hear the voices and comments of various audience members throughout the teaching. While this often causes our time to go a little long, it also deepens and enriches our time together as we discuss what we are learning and reflect on how to live it out. So bear with us. We are not professionals, but we are imperfect people who love and serve a perfect God. Let's go. The past couple of weeks, we've been talking specifically about a couple of different people's response and reaction to Jesus's message and his uh, and his works. Last week, we talked about Jesus the Compassionate. Um, beautiful picture of Jesus's incredible love for someone who doesn't, there's no even, there's no explicit sign of faith, right? There's no explicit ask for help. It's just Jesus sees a woman who is broken and destitute and he shows incredible compassion and love for her uh, to the point where he raises her dead son and returns him to her. This week, we're going to see a little different side of Jesus, right? Yes, he is compassionate. Yes, he is loving. Yes, he is gracious. But he's also someone who rebukes, right? When he sees something that is not right, he speaks up. We're going to see Jesus, the rebuker. Um, If you have not been with us for this entire study, then you would have missed the part Early on in Luke where we talked about a man named John the Baptizer, or some people call him John the Baptist, although that is a confusing name because he wasn't an actual Baptist. Um, in the way we know them today. In the way that we know <laughs> Baptists today, right? Um, John the Baptizer, just to give you a little refresher, we're going to spend a little bit of time refreshing our minds in, uh, on who John the Baptizer is, and then we're going to jump into this passage because there's some really important truths for us to learn from here. Um, John the baptizer is Jesus's cousin. Uh, Jesus's mother Mary and John's uh, mother were relatives, and so Jesus and John are cousins. And um, in the in the early parts of Luke, we learn a little bit about John's background and John's family. Uh, his parents and his and his and his family were were uh, very faithful and very godly. Um, if you had to compare them to someone today, uh, it would be like a like a, a someone born into a Christian household uh, in a really um, uh, just in a small town, faithfully serving a congregation and a church, and just just faithfully loving and caring for the people that are under them. John's parents were in the ministry; they served God; they were very faithful. 
And for many, many years, they prayed for a child. And for one reason or another, God said no. He told them to keep waiting, keep waiting. And they kept praying and they were faithful. And he told them to keep waiting. And it wasn't until they were in their old age. And, and in many ways, the, the story of John's parents, uh, it parallels some of the stories we see in the Old Testament of uh, people in their old age asking for God to move uh, uh, in, in their midst and to perform a miracle and to provide a child. And, and so John is, uh, uh, John's dad, Zechariah, is serving in the temple one day. He's, do, he's performing a very special and a very honored and very sacred task. And while he's there, an angel from the Lord appears to him in a vision and tells him that they're going to have a kid and that they're going to name him John. Um, and he, and he gives John a very specific and a very special purpose. Even before he was born, John was set aside by God for this very specific and special purpose. And Zechariah, John's dad, has a little bit of issue believing this and he wants some proof. And so uh, the angel says, I'll give you some proof. Uh, you're going to be silent. You're not going to be able to speak until the baby is born. And so Zechariah comes out and he has to like do a little bit of charades with people to tell them that he saw a vision from God and uh, he's going to have a son and he goes home and all of a sudden uh, his, his wife is pregnant and uh, they, they have this season of waiting and rejoicing and celebrating. And uh, an interesting uh, moment happens uh, early on in, the, in that part story where Mary, who is pregnant with Jesus, comes to visit uh, uh, her sister, I guess. And uh, when Mary enters into the room, uh, John actually leaps within the womb. She feels him move for the first time, and he is filled with the Holy Spirit, right? John, baby John, infant fetus John, is filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb at the presence of Jesus. And it's, and it's partly because they have a very close connection uh, in purpose and in function, partly because uh, I think because John's family is very godly and, and this is what John is being brought into. But it has some interesting implications for you and me, right? For those of us who are parents, especially who have children, the fact that the Holy Spirit can indwell a child in the womb means that the Holy Spirit can indwell your children and mine. Okay? Uh, what are we praying for for our children? Right? There's an interesting implication there on how we pray for and what we ask God for from our children. Um, John and Jesus would have grown up relatively close together. Uh, th this time frame, uh, families were very close. Even extended families lived very close together. And so John and Jesus, it's not, it's not un unfounded to believe that they would have grown up playing together in some way. Uh, at least once a year, everyone in uh, in this village would have taken a a, a trip to Jerusalem to uh, to celebrate at one of the festivals. And you didn't take those trips by yourself. It's not like me and Brittany would take Ellie and go down to Jerusalem. You had to go in caravans, in large groups, because it was safer that way. There was less robbers that would come on you when you were traveling through the wilderness uh, if you had a large group. And so it's not unfounded to believe that John and Jesus would have grown up going to Jerusalem together. Right? They were close. They're cousins. They played together. And um, when they got a little bit older, John starts his ministry before Jesus does. 
by the time that Jesus comes to John to be baptized, John already has an incredibly powerful ministry. He's got followers. He's got disciples. He's got people that are coming to hear him preach, uh, people that are coming to be baptized, and they're repenting of sin. And uh, there's this like massive following of people that are following John. This is before Jesus does anything. John has already got this incredible ministry. Um, and there's a buzz around town about this this prophet who's doing these weird things out in the wilderness, and people are coming to hear him speak and uh, and are responding in, in really powerful ways. Uh, and many people from very diverse backgrounds come to hear John speak. Uh, he had such a powerful way of preaching the gospel and speaking uh, the word of God that uh, it, it drew a large variety of people. There were tax collectors that came to hear him preach. There were um, even soldiers, Roman soldiers would come and hear John preach because uh, because his preaching was so powerful. And eventually this, this drew the attention of uh, the religious leaders and other people in the community, and they would come out and, and just examine and listen to John's preaching. And, and he had some pretty uh, strong words for the religious leaders. And a lot of what John taught his message um, parallels the things that Jesus taught us. If you remember back in Luke, I think, chapter 3, uh, uh, John taught things like... Uh, you know, if, if someone takes your cloak, give them your other one as well. What was that, Jesus? That was Jesus. Um, when a soldier asked him what we should do, John taught them to not extort people. When a tax collector asked what we should do, John taught them to to be fair in in their in their tax collecting. And so, a lot of the things that John and Jesus taught were very similar because they're from the scriptures, right? Makes sense that they would be similar. And it's, he had some really strong words for people who were very religious, but didn't actually follow and love the way of God. Um, like I said earlier, from a very early age, John had been given a very special and specific purpose for his life. Uh, it was given to him by the angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1. And you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read this for you. Luke chapter 1 verse 15 uh, Gabriel says this, he says, For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and to the, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready uh, for the Lord a people prepared. So, Overall, John had two primary purposes for his life, two primary goals in his ministry. Goal number one was to challenge the people of Israel to, to turn to God in repentance, right? to recognize their need and their brokenness, to recognize their sinfulness, and to turn to God in repentance. Uh, and number two, the goal was to prepare those people for the coming of the Messiah or the Christ. Messiah is the Hebrew word, Christ is the Greek word, it means the same thing. Uh, John's purpose was to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. And he does this very, very well. Right? People are coming to him in droves to be baptized because they're repenting. Baptism was a sign of repentance. Even to this day, we practice baptism as a sign of repentance. When someone puts their faith in Jesus and when someone uh, says, I, I, don't, I no longer want to live the way of, of the world. I want to follow the way of Jesus. I, I'm, I'm, I'm aligning myself with him. Uh, we go and we dunk him in water as a sign of repentance. It's an old practice 
that is still being done today. And John spends a lot of his time pointing people to Jesus. There's this interesting moment in Luke chapter 3 where the people are actually thinking that John might be the Messiah. Because he's powerfully preaching. He's a prophet of God. People are coming to him and, and repenting. He's got a large following. They're thinking maybe John is this Messiah that we're waiting for. And in Luke chapter 3 verse 15 it says, As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather up the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So from day one, John is saying, I'm not the Christ. The one who's coming after me is much, much better and much, much greater than I am. I am not even worthy to untie his shoelaces. That's how great he is. And later, when he sees Jesus coming to him, his cousin, this is his cousin Jesus coming to him, his younger cousin, he says uh, in, in John, this is actually from the Gospel of John chapter 1, uh, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. And a couple of verses later, he says, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the son of God. Can you imagine worshiping your little baby cousin as God? All right, you guys have cousins? It's weird. It's weird, right? But John recognized who Jesus was. John recognized... um, that he was the Messiah, he was greater than he was, that he was before he was, even though John was born first. There's some really interesting uh, twists there, right? And so it it comes to the point where even when John's disciples come to gather around him, John sends his disciples to go and follow Jesus. And some of Jesus' first disciples were originally followers of John. And they come and they follow Jesus instead because John is fulfilling his purpose well. He's calling people to repentance and he's preparing them for the gospel. He's preparing them for Jesus. Uh, It's important for you to know that John's ministry style was very conservative. It was was a a very high level of truth telling. Uh, he, uh, uh, He abstained from many aspects of culture. He didn't drink alcohol. He didn't eat fancy foods. Um, he didn't dress all spiffy, right, or live in a nice home. Uh, he he separated himself from culture, and he lived in the wilderness, and he ate locusts and honey. And uh, you you, if you were living in that day, you're like, man, this guy's a little bit weird. Today, I think that guy's a little weird. Yeah, I mean, he dresses in camel hair. Who dresses in camel hair? Right, it's it's not very comfortable. Um, and John was very blunt and straightforward with people. Just look at some of the things John would say to his followers and to the people that came to listen to him. Was, he was very blunt, very to the point, very like heavy on the truth. Um, he didn't beat around the bush. He taught the scriptures. He was very upfront with people about sin, which is an important role for someone who is calling people to repentance. Um, And he didn't favor any particular group. Like I said before, he had tax collectors, soldiers, Jews, religious people. Kings were even coming to him. And he called them all sinners. He called them all to repentance. He didn't hold back the truth. And ultimately, this causes him to ruffle a lot of feathers. 
Uh, and some people think he's crazy. Some people just don't don't like what he has to say. And some people truly hate him and they are offended by him. And eventually, uh, John crosses a line uh, with, with King Herod. He calls King Herod out on a sin. I believe King Herod was sleeping with his wife's daughter or, or, or something like that, um, or his, sis, his wife's sister. And so John calls him out on it. He says, hey, uh, you're supposed to be leading the people of God. You're not supposed to do that. And Herod does not like that, so he has him arrested. And at this time that we're meeting John right here, in this passage, he is in prison. Right? He's been in prison for a little while. And he's spending some time uh, kind of rehashing and processing through, uh, am, I, am I still for this? Am I still going to follow this Jesus character? Uh, or, or maybe I, I was wrong. I mean, look at where, look where teaching this message led me into prison. So he's, he's processing through um, everything that's going on. I know how to pause for a minute. I want to talk about this idea of grace and truth. Um, the New Testament tells us that Jesus came and he was full of grace and truth. Uh, some of us, some of you, are people who are full of, of grace. Brittany is someone who I think is full of grace, right? Um, when, when, when something's going on, she's quick to offer grace. She's quick to... Um, uh, to offer people another opportunity, another chance to speak softly, to love them, to care for them, to show empathy for them, um, and if and, and sometimes this can go so far as to uh, to the point where we are, we're kind of always letting people off. I'm not saying that that's what you do, but we 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 spend time always letting people off. While while some of us are people who are so full of truth that we get to the point where we're always telling people off. Right? We're either letting people off because we're full of grace or we're telling people off because we're full of truth. Uh, and we need a little bit of both. Both are important. I need to know what is my natural bend and I need to work towards balance. And so it's actually been funny because over the past couple of years, we've noticed that I'm typically someone who's more uh, focused on truth to the point where sometimes I might say something hurtfully that I could have said more graciously. Uh, it's still true, but I, I could have said it better. And there are times when Brittany needs to speak up and be more truthful. Um, and I have to encourage her to be more truthful. And so we, we've balanced each other out over the past seven years. Um, you need a little bit of both. Jesus was full of grace and truth. And we need to be people who are full of grace and truth as well. And so John is someone who spoke bluntly and clearly about the sin that he saw in the people's lives around him. And this is an important part for someone who has a ministry of repentance and preparation. Right? You can't call people to repentance if you don't tell them what they need to repent of. We need to be a people who are, who are not afraid to speak truth in our culture, even if it's not popular, even if it might potentially offend someone. But we also need to be people who are full of grace, like Jesus uh, and we do our best to speak truth and, and, and not shy away from the truth while also doing this in a way that is loving and gracious uh, towards the people around us. Um, where do you find yourself? Where are you on the spectrum? Are you someone who is who leans towards truth or are you someone who leans towards grace? This is not a rhetorical question. I, I want to hear what you have to say. I lean more towards grace. I think everybody would say I'm a very gracious person, 
Thanks for speaking the truth, Bridget. <laughs> a guy balance her out on that. I lean more towards grace. It's funny how we tend to do that with our spouses. That, that's the truth. <laughs> <laughs> I would say for me, it depends on the person. Okay. Mm-hmm. If I know the person, it's definitely true. If I don't know the person very well, it's great. So there has to be a comfort level for your truth to come out. But when it does, it will. And, I, and if I know the person, and I know, like, like for me, I'd be like, I know that she knows better, so I'm going to tell her straight up. Same with Kevin. I'll tell him like it is. Yeah. I think Manny and I have a good cop, bad cop routine. Like, we <laughs> balance back and forth between grace and truth, depending on the situation. So, in whichever one is more worked up, so. Uh-huh. Um, so here's where we find ourselves in our passage this morning. John is in prison. His ministry was huge. Right? For 400 years, the prophets of God were silent, and John comes along as a prophet of God. He speaks truth. He calls people to repentance. He calls sin, sin, and people are coming in droves to repent and confess and be baptized, uh, and he points people to Jesus, but now he's in prison. Right? He said something that landed him in prison. Uh, and things are not looking good for him. We know because we've read the whole story that John is eventually going to be beheaded. And for a stupid reason, too. John is going to be beheaded. And as he's hearing about Jesus' message and his ministry, he is processing through his own doubts and his own fears. John has doubts and fears like you and I do. And this is where we find him in this passage. And so this passage, while John is the subject of this passage... It's only partly about John. This passage is actually about you and me. Okay, and I'm going to show you how in a minute. Um, Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you so much for your scriptures. Thank you so much for the opportunity for us to examine them and study them and and talk about uh, what they mean for our everyday lives. I pray that you would open our eyes as we read through your, your scriptures, that you would convict us of sin, call us to repentance, that you would humble us and help us to see our own brokenness. And I pray, Jesus, that you would, uh, you would just be present with us as we read through your scriptures and discuss them. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, this passage naturally breaks down into three sections. Uh, section one, John sends a question to Jesus. An, an honest, just seeking of Jesus. Uh, section two, Jesus is addressing the crowd. And he talks about John for a little bit. And then section three, Jesus actually rebukes rejection. He rebukes rejection. Let's read verse 18 together. Uh, I'll read. You guys listen. Not not together, together. Read along. Read along with me. Uh, The disciples of John reported all of these things to him. What what things? Right? Centurion's uh, servant being healed. Right? The widow's son being raised from the dead. 
right? All these things are happening and they're not happening in a corner and everyone's talking about them and the news reaches John. And so John calls two of his disciples to him, sending them to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? That's, that's a sign of a good messenger, right? When the message that I, I ask you to pass along gets along, all right, these are, these are trustworthy messengers. Uh, the one who is to come was a reference to the Messiah. Uh, the Israelites were eagerly anticipating and waiting for the coming of a Messiah. They didn't know exactly what he was going to look like. There was a lot of prophecies and scriptures that talked about the Messiah, what he was going to do, what he was going to be like. And, uh, and so they were looking for him. They're actually, you could, doing some, some investigation in the Old Testament, you could actually narrow it down to a time frame in, uh, in Jesus' lifetime that the Messiah was supposed to come. Right? There was only one time frame, according to the prophecies of the Old Testament, that G- the Messiah could have come, and it was, surprise, surprise, during the life of Jesus. And so the people of Jesus today were specifically looking for the Messiah, and they knew he was supposed to come now. And so John asks him, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Verse 21, and in that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John starts preaching about the coming of the Messiah and he starts pointing people to Jesus, John had a very clear expectation of what the Messiah was going to be like. He says in chapter 3, verse 17, I've already read this, but I'm going to read it again. His winnowing fork is at hand to clear the threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Uh, the Old Testament, like I've already said, has a lot to say about the, uh, about the coming Messiah. The book of Isaiah is actually sometimes called the fifth gospel because it has so much to say about uh, the coming of the Messiah and what he's going to be like. And Isaiah describes the coming of a conquering king who's going to set all things right and he's going to restore and redeem his people. Uh, It also describes in a couple of sections uh, a Messiah who's going to be like a suffering servant. And uh, you just have to read Isaiah 53 to see this. It's very clearly portrayed there that the Messiah would be a suffering servant. And many people didn't know how to reconcile these two. Is he going to be a conquering king or is he going to be a suffering servant? How do... How do we know what he's going to be like? Or is it, or maybe it's going to be two separate people. Someone who's going to be a conquering king who's going to restore uh, the kingdom of God and someone who's going to be a suffering servant who's going to pay for the sins of the world. And so they didn't quite know how to process and, 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 and reconcile these two things together. And so uh, John's question in many ways shows that he even struggled with this, right? Jesus is supposed to be the one who uh, r- frees us from the oppressors. He's supposed to liberate us from prison. He's supposed to heal people and restore people. And where is John? He's in prison. Right? If Jesus is supposed to be the person that, 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 that frees us from prison, why am I in prison? Okay, It's a natural question that he asks. And I, here's what I'll say. Uh, Jesus is coming as a conquering king. 
His second coming is going to be as a conquering king, but his first coming was as a suffering servant. And so Jesus does what he often does. People ask him a question and he does not give them an answer. He invites them to consider for themselves, right? Um, he tells them, look at the people who are being healed of their diseases, the people who are, have evil spirits or demons cast out of them, the people who, are, who were blind who are no longer blind. Look at the lame who are walking, the lepers who are cleansed, the deaf who are hearing. Look at the dead who are raised up. And listen, the good news is being preached to the poor. All of these specific things that Jesus lists off are actually found in the book of Isaiah. They were things that the Messiah was going to be doing. Isaiah 35 verse 5, 26 verse 19, 29 verse 18, Isaiah 61 verse 1. Uh, Jesus has these passages memorized. He recalls them like that. And he invites the, the, the disciples of John to examine the works and says, if this is what the Messiah is supposed to be like, and this is what you're seeing happening, make an assessment. Right? Make an assessment. Make a decision for yourself. Don't just take someone else's word for it. Examine the evidence and make an assessment. If the scriptures are true, and we believe they are, uh, and if the works of Jesus line up with the scriptures, which they do, then you have to have faith and follow Jesus. Man, let me ask you this. This is not rhetorical. I want to invite you to, to respond. Uh, in your opinion, why do you think John, someone who clearly knows and proclaims Jesus as the Messiah, why do you think he would send a question like this to Jesus? I mean, for me, I kind of think of it as like, well, nobody's perfect. And so I think he, even though he believes, I mean, I think he might have been experiencing a little bit of doubt. Yeah. At least that's what I kind of get out of it. Yeah. Some people try to explain John's question away. Um, they say things like, well, maybe John is just trying to help his disciples better understand who Jesus is. Right? He's just, he's just, he's asking the question that they're all thinking and he's inviting them to, this is just a way of discipling them. Um, some people think that maybe John didn't really believe that Jesus was the Messiah and this is the, t the part where he's finally starting to believe um, but I think the reality is that John, like any other person today, experiences real doubts and he asks real questions when Jesus doesn't fit the mold that he was expecting, right? It's okay to doubt. It's okay to have uh, moments of, of fear, moments of wondering, man, is this, is this really what, what Christ is all about? Is this really what the scriptures are all about? Is this really what Jesus is all about? It's normal for us to doubt, um, when I was in youth group uh, back in um, in high school, I remember there was a phrase that our youth pastor would always say, and I love it, and I remember it to this day. He used to tell all of us, he says, it's, it's okay to be where you are. It's not okay to stay there. And it felt so normalizing for me uh, as someone who had doubts and questions and concerns. It felt so normalizing for someone to say, it's okay for you to be where you are. Just don't stay there, Right? John is in a position of, uh, of persecution. He's in prison and he's going through doubts. 
Um, and Jesus doesn't rebuke him for his doubt. It's okay to be a person who has moments of doubt and fear. Just don't stay there. In a moment, Jesus is going to call John the greatest man to have ever lived on the face of this earth. Right? It's almost like one of those uh, questions we ask late at night, like, if you could go back to any era and talk to any one person, who would it be? Uh, who do you think is the greatest person to ever walk the earth? And, and uh, some of us would probably think of someone like you know, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, or Mother Teresa. And Jesus tells us it was actually John. John is the greatest person to have ever lived on the earth. And we can spend hours, I think, discussing why did Jesus call John the greatest person. He's a little bit of a weirdo. Right? He eats bugs, he lives in the wilderness, he wears camel hair. And he's the goat. He's the goat. <laughs> Thank you for that sports reference, Brittany. Uh, why, we could spend hours discussing why John believes Jesus is the greatest, but I think that at least one of them uh, is because when John experiences doubts, instead of crumbling and falling away, he seeks Jesus out and he digs for truth. Mm-hmm. Right? He chooses to press into Jesus rather than fall away in his doubt. Um, and then I think Jesus says something that I believe is the main point of the entire passage. Verse 23 says, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And this word offended, literally, uh, the, the Greek for it is skandalizo. Right? If you hear the word scandalize in there, right, that's what that means. Blessed is the one who is not scandalized by me. Right, Some people, when they come to Jesus with their questions, their concerns, and their fears, uh, they walk away offended or scandalized because Jesus says and calls us uh, to something that doesn't line up with our own thinking and perspectives. Okay? Some people walk away from Jesus because he doesn't say what, th- what we want him to say. Verse 24, let's read on. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Uh, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. This is called uh, some holy sarcasm right here. Okay, a reed shaken by the wind. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing uh, and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, he is the one of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. That's Malachi 3 right there. Verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, having not been baptized by him. Uh, and the, Jesus is pointing out that they were drawn to John not because he uh, had a great facility and he had a great light show and he wore fancy clothing. They were, they were drawn to, to John because he spoke truth from the scriptures. He spoke on behalf of God uh, and they needed to hear that truth. Right? So when you come to God because your soul is craving truth, right? when you come to God because you're craving a connection with him, why would you reject what he has to say to you? especially if it doesn't line up with what you're thinking. And I want you to notice that the people who would have readily uh, identified themselves as sinners 
respond to God with repentance and humility. All right, they were the people who responded with repentance and humility. But the people who thought that they were pretty well off, the people that thought that they were great, the people that thought that they were holy, they're the ones who respond with rejection. Right? And this is a really, really important piece for us to understand. Uh, yes, we are made in the image of God. Yes, we have value and worth in our very being. Yes, he loves us intimately and he deeply cares for us. But no, you and I are not okay. Right? We are not good. We are not righteous. Right? We don't do enough good things. God's love for us has nothing to do with yours and my goodness. Right? We have to humbly recognize our own brokenness and need for God. Right? And if we can do that, we are already one massive step closer to a right relationship with him. Right? If I can't recognize my brokenness and sinfulness and my need for God, if I'm unwilling to see that, then there's no way that I would ever be willing to accept the good news of the kingdom of God. I mean, it makes sense, right? The kingdom of God is actually bad news to those who have established and love their own kingdom. I have to recognize that something's not right with me. Something's not right with the world. Something's not right with, uh, with how I relate to the people around me before I am ready to accept that Jesus has done these things for me. Verse 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For, the, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say he has a demon. The son of man has come drinking and eating and you say look at him a glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by, her, by all her children. Uh, this mini parable that Jesus gives us right here is actually sometimes called the parable of the brats. Okay, um, I don't know if you've ever watched a, a, a bunch of children playing and there's sometimes there's one of them that wants everyone to play according to their own rules and they want to be the leader and they want to be the winner. And if they're not winning and if they're not the leader, then they're not going to play. They're going to pout in the corner and they're going to say, I'm not going to play. That's it. All right, have you ever seen this happen? Have you been that kid? Right? Maybe you are that child. If you can't identify that child in your life, you are that child. Um, when, 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 a, when you're not winning, you, you just you pout and you say, I'm not going to play. <laughs> I, see, I see Vaughn shaking her head. <laughs> um, it's a little bit confusing who's talking to who, but the general consensus among scholars is that Jesus is, is he's calling the religious leaders a bunch of kids. You're a bunch of children, right? Because they want Jesus and they want John to play by their rules. Uh, and when they don't, they pout and they refuse to play along. Right, Jesus, if, if, if your message about the kingdom of God doesn't involve us being on top and us being winners and us being leaders, then we don't want to have anything to do with it. Right? And Jesus calls that childish. And even worse than that, it is foolish and dangerous. Some of us come to Jesus with our questions, concerns, and fears. 
And we walk away offended because what Jesus has to say and what he calls us to doesn't line up with our thinking and our perspectives. Um, it, you don't have to look far in society today to, to find a thing called confirmation bias. You guys, raise your hand if you've heard that, that phrase, confirmation bias. It's this idea, this tendency uh, of looking for and interpreting and favoring and recalling information that only confirms and supports what we have already chosen to believe or value. So if I, if I believe that a certain political party is evil, I'm going to look for and, and only listen to things that confirm what I already believe rather than coming at it with humility and saying, what are the facts? And I'm going to change my beliefs based on the facts. Right? This is all over social media today. Right? If we're only coming to Jesus to get confirmation for what we already think and do, man, we're already lost. That's not how Jesus works. Right? We don't come to Jesus for affirmation for our lifestyle and choices. We come for him, to him to ask him to point out parts of our lifestyle that we need to change to become more like him. Um, can you imagine... Right. Imagine that I uh, I really love punching myself in the face. Right. I just love it. I'm punching myself in the face, and I come to you. And I'm like, hey, I don't know what's going on, but for some reason my nose keeps bleeding and my face hurts all the time. And you're like, Tim, I mean, you got to stop punching yourself in the face. What if I got mad at you for for telling me to stop punching myself in the face? That would be ridiculous. That would be foolish. Right? In the same way, if I'm leading a lifestyle that has negative consequences, if my choices are leading to negative consequences because I'm not living the way God has intended me to live, then why would, I, would I, why would I be scandalized if I come to God and he tells me that the way I'm living is not right? And he says, listen, you got to stop punching yourself in the face. The reason why your face hurts is because you're hurting yourself. You're not living the way that I've created you to live. Far too many people in our generation are coming to God expecting him to approve of their lifestyle and their choices. Uh, and, and yet somehow they also want him to fix all the negative consequences of those lifestyle and choices. Okay, we don't come to Jesus to confirm what we already believe. We come to Jesus to repent of the areas in which we don't line up with how he wants us to live. And so Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. right? Because if I am offended by what Jesus has to say, I'm going to reject it and walk away from it. But if I am humble and broken enough to say, Jesus, you're right, right? I am going to find life and I will be blessed. Um, you have two potential responses to this. Okay, You can either A, recognize your own brokenness and sinfulness. Uh, you can come to Jesus in humility and repentance. Uh, like like the, the passage says, you can declare God just. Jesus, God, you are right. You are right in your assessment of me. And you will experience incredible grace and the infinite love of God. Or you can reject your own brokenness and your own sinfulness. You can pridefully claim that, you, that you're right and God is wrong. And you can reject whatever Jesus has to say, no matter how he says it. And, and there's this funny little hypocr hypocrisy moment that happens here. You and I, are, we're very capable of justifying our decisions and, and, and finding reasons to reject this or that or the other, right? And so religious leaders, they looked at, at John and they said, oh, he's too conservative, right? Uh, 
he's, he's not eating any bread. He's not drinking any wine. He's too conservative. We're going to reject what he has to say. They look at Jesus and he's too liberal. He's eating, he's drinking, he's hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. And so they reject what he has to say. Right? We are very good at finding reasons to reject and justify our rejections. But Jesus says that wisdom is justified by all of her children. In other words, take a look at the product of your life. Right? Take a look at the product of your life and your choices. What is the offspring of your decisions? Right? If you are experiencing life and peace and joy and hope and love, right? these, are, these are the fruits of following wisdom. Okay, but if you're experiencing death and fear and hopelessness and hate, this is the fruit of your decisions. That's where I want to leave you this morning. Jesus has strong words to say for people who reject uh, his teaching. He calls out their hypocrisy. And he invites us to be like the tax collectors and sinners who recognize our brokenness, who humble ourselves, who repent, turn to him for forgiveness and for grace. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. It's okay for you to doubt. It's okay for you to have moments where you're questioning, man, what is, do I really believe this? Right? Is this really what Jesus is about? Uh, don't allow those doubts to cause you to fall away. Press into Jesus. Seek truth. Seek him. Man, and Jesus is going to call you great. Lord Jesus, um, in a world where so many people are offended by your message, offended by um, the fact that, that the scriptures call them broken and sinful, so many people that are offended by uh, even just this call to love, uh, we're offended that you would, you would expect us to love our enemies. Jesus, may we be people who call you just and we repent in humility and say, God, you are right. I am broken. I am sinful. Thank you so much for your grace. Jesus, uh, for those of us that have been walking with you for years, uh, would you point out areas in our life where we need to repent and confess and humble ourselves? For those of us who struggle and we're doubting and, and maybe we haven't even committed ourselves to you yet, would you draw us to a place where we see our brokenness and our sinfulness? Would you draw us to humility and give us eyes to, uh, to see the truth? And would you lead us to repentance so that we can experience your grace and your love? I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.